Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is almost word for word identical to Psalm 14. One of the key differences is that Psalm 14, instead of the word God, will often use the word Yahweh. It does have God in it a couple of times, but it uses Yahweh, and this one does not. So that is interesting to notice. The other is that verse 5 will read differently. So if you read through them, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6, there's a couple of words that are different, but by and large almost identical. Verse 5 of Psalm 14, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You should shame, you would shame the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. So the focus of Psalm 14 is that the fool is in terror because God is with his people, and God cares for his people, and God is the refuge of his people. So as they seek to harm the people of God, they have something to fear. Whereas verse 5 of this psalm, it does have that same kind of a weight to it, the idea that the Lord fights for his people. But there's both a focus on the fear and then a focus on God actually destroying the enemy. Again, aside from that, you're not going to see much difference. So it's according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. Those are two different musical notations for this psalm, for the, the choir master to present to the choir. Are they settings, melodies? It's hard to always say what these terms mean. We just don't know as we've lost so much of the music, musical side of these things over the time of history. The fool says in his heart there is no God. There are many fools that say that in their heart today. A significant portion of the world, an ever-growing portion it feels like in our own land, rejecting God altogether, believing that 
this world is just an accident and that they are thus free to do whatever they please and and live however they want for now because, uh, well, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die and there's nothing after it. That's the perspective that many people live by. But we can't just point out others with this. For the verse ends with, there is none who does good. This is also us. Our sinful natures want to be God for ourselves. And that's our rebellion against the Lord. We don't want to do it his way because we believe our way is better. That's our sin. That's our sinful nature. It's our rebellion against the Lord. So, first commandment stuff. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. Iniquity, just another word here for sin. Abominable. Terrible sin. There is none who does good. And this should hopefully connect us to Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is really quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul lumps us all together under sin in order to then point out that just as we are all condemned together, so there is salvation in one. It's verses 22, 23, 24 of that chapter. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no one who does good. Only one. There is only Jesus. But there is no man. Only the God and man, Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We have rebelled. We have rejected. We have sought to live our own way. And so the Lord looks down from his throne in heaven upon us to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, to which Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And in our despair, sometimes we start to answer that question, no. This is the prophet Elijah's plight in 1 Kings 19 where he feels like he is the only faithful one who remains and he flees and he hides and then the Lord tells him that there are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are times of darkness in the church where it will feel like we are alone, but we are not. They have all fallen away, verse 3. Together they have become corrupt, none who does good, not even one. Family conversation around that, does God really mean that? Aren't we generally good people? Yes, he means it, and no, we're not generally good people. All of our works are filthy rags. 
We try to earn our salvation. We try to think that we can be enough. We're not enough. We're not worthy. We don't deserve it. That's our sinful nature again, trying to say God's way is not right. God's way is not good. God's word to us, Ephesians 2, just read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It covers it. We were dead in our trespasses, but we were made alive in Christ Jesus. And that's it. It's a gift. It's faith. It's a gift. It's given. It's not earned. None of us are good enough. And none of us are generally good. We can only do good works in Christ. What he does through us. Everything else is of our sinful nature. And is broken by its very very start. And I think this is one of the things that's gotten us into trouble so much as a church today in the United States. We have generally wanted to look at our neighbors around us as being good people rather than recognizing that they're not good, that they are sinners, that they are, they are, in fact, evil. And so we have sought to trust them, and we've let our guards down, and we've started to believe the things that they believe. We've started to live the way that they live. We've started to worship the things that they worship. Money, success, happiness, sports, whatever. The people on the news who tell you what's going on in your community, if they are not in Christ, they are not true. They are not speaking the truth, and we should not trust them. Those people in those TV shows and movies, maybe sometime look behind the curtain, see what it is that they actually believe and talk about in their day-to-day life. You'll find out it's pretty scary stuff. Most of them want nothing to do with you as a Christian. What do you think they're going to tell in their stories? Do you think their stories are going to be good and just and godly? Not likely. But we've genuinely wanted to believe that they were good. And it's backfired. No one does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread. And, uh, I mean, we can tie back to the examples I was just using. For David, who is this? Is it the Philistines, the Ammonites, King Saul, enemies that he wrestled with? Or is it a look at those who satisfy their evil desires at the expense of others? Who see others not as a person to serve and care for, but seeing others as someone who can serve me, make me better, make my life better. And this is the real challenge, and still is for us again today. If I look at my neighbor and wonder how they can help me, instead of wondering how I can help them, I have it backwards. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So they're destroying God's people. They're destroying those who are in need. Verse 5, we've already looked at a little bit, but what are they afraid of? Might be a family conversation. I actually kind of wonder who's afraid here. The, the they word is a little generic in terms of what the referent is. Is it the doers of evil that are afraid? 
Or is it the, the people that are being consumed as bread that are afraid? Let's look at both. If this is to be the people that are evil, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the judgment of God. And there need not be any terror because Jesus Christ has forgiven all sin. The day of judgment doesn't need to be fearful for anyone. But unfortunately, because they live in their sin and continue to reject Christ's forgiveness and love for them, that day will be a tragic one of fearfulness indeed. But it doesn't have to be that way. So God scatters their bones as they fight against his people. He has rejected them. The flip side of this, and it's verse 5b here that kind of leads me to think maybe we take it the other way. What if this is the people that are being consumed? What if this is the faithful, that small group that trust in the Lord, that they're afraid? What are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid of being consumed. They're afraid of the evil person around them harming them. But they need not fear. Because that evil person seeking to harm them ultimately cannot harm them. This is a message Jesus teaches in the New Testament. Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so our our challenge here is that we fear the enemy. We fear even what Satan can do. We fear pain, we fear suffering, we fear death, but we don't have to. Because when the world kills us, what happens? Christ raises us from the dead. Thanks be to God, there is no need to fear the enemy. Now, why is it possible to take 5a as talking about the fear of God's people, God's people being afraid? Because that's what the second part of the verse seems to go that direction. You need not be afraid. Why? Because God has already scattered your enemy. He's already defeated them. He's already rejected them while he cares for you, and you get to put the enemy to shame on the day of judgment when they're they're cast out and you're not. You're welcomed home. I think it fits actually much better to look at verse 5, the terror, those in terror being the faithful. Anyway, uh, verse 6, salvation for Israel would come from Zion. That is Jerusalem. So David praying that God would save his people, and he does. Jesus Christ rides that donkey, Zechariah 9.9, into the city of Jerusalem where he is betrayed, arrested, flogged, mocked, and crucified. And he is led to the cross on the hill of Golgotha for us. Salvation for Israel, for the people of God, those who who believe, who trust in the promise God gave to Abraham many years before. Salvation in Christ. God restores the fortunes of his people. He raises us from the dead. He welcomes us to the feast that never ends. And so Jacob rejoices, Israel is glad. Those words are interchangeable. The people of God. Romans chapter 9 will pick up on that, that we are children of Abraham, not by blood, but by promise. That as he believed in the promise, he was saved. He was counted righteous by the promise, by his trust in the promise, and so are we. We are his children, children of faith. So we are Israel. Salvation has come. 
unto us. Let us rejoice. This is the day the Lord has made, and he has rescued and redeemed us. Thanks be to God. Praise we cry.